Verdadores. A dedicated dad and long-distance parent, I'm raising two boys in two countries, and in each episode, I invite another dad to join me in a podcast adventure to talk about our journey as parents. We will discuss the messiness of modern dadding and the challenges of long-distance parenting. At the end of each episode, I will be checking in with psychologist and fellow dad Todd Kettner as he shares his insights into parenthood. My name is Blue, and I am a Dad Without Borders. Hello, and welcome back to Dad Without Borders, and season's greetings, happy holidays. Um, I hope everybody is having a nice Christmas break and getting some quality time with your kids, um, in whatever, however that looks. And yeah, really excited that my son was able to get to Canada from the UK, despite some of the restrictions that are happening, and despite the fact that he was delayed getting here because he did have COVID. Um, fortunately, he didn't re- didn't particularly react to it. He looked pretty good throughout. I think he had a bit of a cold, maybe. Um, but yeah, nothing serious. Uh, it was more a fact that, yeah, just with the paperwork and the isolation he had to go through, that there was that delay. So a little stressful. But he's here and we're having a fantastic time playing in the mountains, playing in the snow. Uh, We have a white Christmas here in Canada where we are. And yeah, we've been out skiing and he's skiing incredibly, doing really well on the skis. So that's super fun. So yeah, a very traditional white Christmas where we are. So a day late because of, yeah, just being completely immersed in family My parents flew my son over here. He's only eight years old, so he cannot fly on his own. Um, So they're here as well. So yeah, it's a really nice family gathering that we're having. So yeah, a day late coming with this episode. Um, I'm sure it hasn't thrown you off too much. But yeah, apologies for that if you're waiting for the next one to come out. And today's episode is with Sean Larson. And it's somewhat a festive edition. Uh, because we do talk about Santa Claus and Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer. Uh, anyway, Sean has got some a strong opinion around that story um, and some of the Santa stuff. Uh, but yeah, it's a great another great episode with him talking about many things. We sort of go on a bit of a journey in this conversation, talking about various topics. But we start off with talking about military dads, long-distance parenting, We then get into dealing with teenagers and he has some really interesting things to say around timeouts and sending kids to their room and how to deal with that that kind of energy, uh, that meltdown, that tantrum kind of situation. And as a parent, what you can do. Um, And I really like the stuff, some of his ideas around that. Um, And yeah, what else do we talk about? There's a few other things come up. Um, But anyway, it's a great conversation. I really enjoy having a professional like Sean Larson who has such a strong background um, in studying fatherhood and parenting and family therapy. Uh, so yeah, lots of good stuff to share. So as ever, um, well, have a great Christmas and please enjoy. So hey, Sean, great to see you again. Um, you're looking well. 
And yeah, I'm excited again to another conversation with you about dads. I'm really interested to hear about your masters that you did um, around military fathers. Can you just sort of give us like the, the snapshot of what that was about? Sure. So um, my master's was looking at, um, at the time I had to use veterans or recently uh, retired from military service just because of ethics and, and trying to do any interviewing with fathers in the military uh, who are still active in the military just seemed impossible for a master's project. So I ended up interviewing fathers who had fairly recently left the military. Um, which, which I know gives you a bit of a biased sample because they're not in it anymore. But, but that said, I mean, as, as we'll probably talk about, I mean, none of the fathers were like, I got out of the military because it sucked. And most of them gave a pretty, I think a pretty honest accounting of some of their challenges. And, and then of course their dedication to the military and to protecting it. I think, um, you know, I, I think we definitely will talk about the masters, but it's gonna tie into I mean, a lot of the other research I've, I've done too, because it's, I think now as I reread my master's work, uh, I think of a lot about it through some of the lenses I've been thinking through a little bit after that, especially around, uh, you know, dominant masculine roles in society uh, and how certainly the military pre prevent, presents such a, uh, I mean, almost a polar example of some of those dominant masculine ideals. Uh, so it, I think it becomes a really interesting spot to talk about and, and a really interesting group of men um, to comment on it. What I'm immediately thinking of is the fact that they're putting themselves into well, two things. One, they're going to be there's going to be a distance between them and their family. But the other one is that danger factor that you can't avoid, obviously, in the military. So for me, becoming a dad, I very much have scaled back on the risk that I take when I'm in the mountains, for example, not to compare that to being in the military and at war, but how did, yeah, how did they reconcile that? I mean, I imagine in some cases they were already in the military when, when the kid came along, as opposed to, I have a kid, now I'm going to choose to go away in the military. Was that generally the this, this situation that they were in the military, then they would have a start a family? Yeah, all the fathers I spoke to uh, were in the military uh, before they became fathers. So, so in terms of their roles, I mean, their role as a military member was established well before the role as a father. Right. So that yeah, that would make a difference with that. Because I wonder if that how that would work. You know, if once you're a dad, it'd probably be quite hard to then, you know, jump into a culture like that. Yeah, and I think. Like, I think it's also hard because military, and I, I learned this talking to fathers, military experience differs so much between military members and even branches of the military. Like I know, um, you know, my sample um, was split between, we had a couple Navy members and then we had a couple Army members. And certainly the difference between the Navy and the Army uh, was hugely different in that I think rates of PTSD are, are certainly higher for those who are like on the ground versus you know, talking to Navy members who would, they had this huge disconnection piece because some of their deployments were just huge, right? Like they'd just be at sea for, uh, you know, nine or 10 months or, or even more sometimes, I think. Um, and, and certainly when you look at that in the, like in a young child's life, I mean, that's a huge separation, which I think was a whole different experience than some of the army members who were in places like Rwanda or whatever as part of their experience. And, and for them, like, 
you know, you were hearing more of that gritty kind of PTSD side of it that, that, you know, where being a father and certainly being that kind of modern connected father asks you to be able to be emotionally vulnerable and emotionally connected and, and to do that job well for some of these fathers in those dangerous and traumatic places meant shutting off some of those things. And so I, I think, you know, to whisk, to whisk away and do that job and then to come back home and all of a sudden you have to be emotionally vulnerable and accept weakness and uh, be able to sit with weakness, um, I think was a really hard transition that, you know, some of them navigated better than others. So when we're talking about them time away, what kind of time away are we talking? Three months and they get, they get um, R&R or are they away for like six months to a year in one long stretch? Yeah. And again, like I did this research, I don't know, it was 10 years ago now. And so I, th- I think there has been a lot changing in the middle. I know at the time I was doing the research, like video chatting had just kind of become an option for fathers. And I, I know we've really expanded our capacity with that over the years. And so it's it might be hard at this point to compare what I was looking at with what happens for fathers currently in the military. So I wanna be cautious about that. But at the time, yeah, fathers, um, especially the Navy fathers were talking about like three months to, I think I heard about like an 18 months deployment and, and somebody from the military could correct me, but there were some big deployments that these fathers were talking about. Um, so so huge so are they practice so at that point i guess video like how are they staying connected are they finding ways like sending letters and like they're getting on the phone regularly like how did that work out well now i think that was one of the more interesting parts for me too is one of so i had i ended up with these four themes that that um we interpreted from my data uh and the four themes were uh that you miss out um you you disconnect uh, like you intentionally disconnect um, you feel like an outsider and the military comes first so those were my my four themes and that one disconnecting one was such an interesting one to me because um, it's it seemed like there were very intentional ways that fathers were like well I have to focus on my job here like it like if I'm constantly thinking about my family I'm not going to be able to do my job and because kind of the military came first and I think those two overlapped. Um, and, and I don't think you see that just in the military. I think you see that across all areas of fatherhood where, I mean, just to get through your day, I, don't, I think it's it would be hard if you were constantly thinking about this thing you were missing out on or the thing you were worried about or caring about. And so you have to kind of shut that emotional side down which I, I think is also a big part of masculinity. I mean, that showed up that showed up in my more recent PhD research too with fathers where men were like, you know, it's my job to shut off my feelings so I can be there to support others. Right. Which is kind of what you hear from the military too. Yeah. Interesting. So did with that, just to stop at that point for a second, is it then harder for them to transition back to being the caring, openly emotional, available father or does there, it was there a long transition when they're coming back into that family unit? Yeah, one, one dad um, described it as, and I really liked this metaphor, is standing on the outside of a spinning carousel waiting for your chance to jump back in because you have this family with all these routines already in place and you just constantly are feeling like you're in the way as you're trying to get back in, but you know, maybe you're there, you're ready to be engaged and maybe it's a time limited thing. So you're like, man, I've got three months home here before I, I have to dip off again for work. Um, 
and so kind of trying to rush back in but a lot of them described it as awkward right and, and you know discipline was something that a lot of fathers talked about where you come home and you're you're expected to maintain that kind of traditional like daddy's home uh toe the line thing and and I mean, anyone who's parented knows that's harder to do if you're not as engaged. Like, I, th I think anytime you're trying to do anything corrective, it's it's always built on that relationship if it's going to be done well. Otherwise, it just comes down as authoritarian. Yeah, right. So is that I would imagine there's a time where they have to decompress as well, just just away from the family. Like, I would imagine it would be really hard to come into a busy household with a couple of kids. It's almost like the mum is running the show. I mean, it depends on the, every family's different, so many variables, but he would then have to fit in to that routine that the mum is sort of in charge of. Yeah, and I don't, um, like I definitely remember men talking about that, but I, I think in fatherhood in general, the term that you hear used in, in literature is, is gatekeeping and maternal gatekeeping in that, in that absolutely, um, like there's almost an invitation into this area where where there is more of a feminine power system in place right and and I know like historically that wasn't always the case that started at you know after the industrial revolution when you know this flight from the home from from masculinity based on production and, and industry um, but but now it does feel like you know you've got your established routines and and roles and so the dominant role inside the home is probably more often that feminine one and so certainly there would be some gatekeeping, I assume, around, well, here are the things I need you to do within this almost task mastering, which was probably a challenging thing for some men, right? They want yeah. to maybe step out of being powerful in the military and, uh, you know, ha having um, all that reward of, of being in charge of these things that feel really meaningful and important and, and then to come home and get told how to fold the laundry is probably quite a challenging thing. I would imagine it's quite a shift. Did they ever talk about that? Like whether, whether it was a day or two or it took them a week to get back in? They may not have that much time too, I guess. Yeah, I remember father, I'm trying to think of specifics, but certainly there was a period of reintegration and uh, like there was a period of reintegration, but I remember one factor that I found really interesting was um, any, any dad who was deployed talked also about this period prior to the separation um, as also an adjusting period where they felt like, you know, for a few weeks or some fathers said, I think even a month or so before they left, they'd start stepping out of family things almost intentionally just to make it easier for them to leave, which was, was, which was something I hadn't really heard of before, but maybe, you know, stopped going to the games or stopped doing stuff. And I, and I assume that's different for all fathers. Um, but it certainly came up from from some that, you know, if, if I'm leaving anyways, I might as well just start checking out a little bit, right? Wow, that's so tough. That's so tough. It makes sense. Like you were saying, you have to shut it. You have to flick a switch and get into your role in, you know, whatever that would be in the military. Yeah, that's really hard. Because what I notice, and it's totally different, um, but with my boy, who's going to be flying back, Fingers crossed he's going to make it. I think he's made the plane. So he's flying for Christmas um, from the UK to back to Canada. But it's a, there's a transitional period just in terms of like, it doesn't matter who it is. If somebody else is coming into the family, he has to then sort of, he's got to figure it out. And it, it can take, it can take a few days to be like, oh, we don't, I don't do that in this house. I can't, 
you know, do X, Y, and Z. And here are my chores I have to do. And yeah, it takes a while. It's, and that's emotionally for me as a distant father, again, very different, but it's the transitional periods that are the toughest. Because when I'm in it, now he's not been here. If he couldn't make the flight, it would suck. It would suck balls. Like I would be that missing out piece, which has been a lot over the last few years. And when I think about that, I don't because it's too hard. You know, I've missed so much of his young life. I mean, I, I got zero to five, which is so key. And so that for me would be hard, I think, to have missed that. But the foundational, the foundation's there. But in some of these years, oh, yeah, I've done, done that missing out piece, but I can't think about it. There's yeah. no way I can think about it. Because if I do, I would just be a mess. And so I, I don't shut out, but the screen helps and we're in regular contacts. But I definitely, I notice sometimes I'm like, huh, I haven't spoken to him for like a few days. And sometimes I think it's almost easier because that transition I know is hard and he'll have it because yeah. he gets used to his routine too. Oh man. And he's going to be really sad when he goes this time because he just loves being here in the winter. It's such a treat for him. So yeah, there's some of these pieces that I really relate to in terms of survival, I guess, emotionally. Yeah. Well, and it, yeah, that was an interesting part too in that research was that, you know, I was asking dads about, well, is it easier now that you have video chatting? And, and a lot of them were like, well, kind of not really, because it makes it harder to shut it off. And then also, I think video chatting for for children, especially, because, I mean, relationships aren't a, a me thing or a you thing, right? They're an us thing. And so, you know, whether or not it's it's super meaningful for a dad, I think video chats can be really hard for kids brains because honestly it's just a different level of stimulation that some kids can handle it other kids just you know I, I know like trying to force my kids to talk to family who who live elsewhere like it's really hard to do because you know the brains want to be doing things that are really engaging in a video chat sometimes just isn't on that level for them and so it's constantly like guys put the stuff down and please talk to your grandparents or whatever and, and so dads would say like yeah you know when we started off on our big deployment like those first few chats like yeah we'd have like a 40 minute chat an hour chat but then after we were gone for so long it became really hard right and so I I don't know if it's a bad thing or just something that people need to be aware of right that it it can be a little bit harder so having them structured a little bit differently to take that into account can probably help yeah I've heard that before about family living far away and dad's trying to do the I'm do the FaceTime or Skype, whatever. I've had good success, I think, because we were so bonded and we then were talking daily. You can't do that in the military necessarily, but because of the daily check-in, yeah. you got so used to it. And I was really, I, I mean, I sort of forget in a way now, but we'd draw pictures together or we'd do some Lego together, or we, but it was trying to find an activity you know what he got really used to speaking to my parents and i would make sure here's a trick for any parents out there that have long distance parent parenting situations i would usually set him up to eat food so when it was the weekend and i he would be with me when we lived in canada i live in canada but when he was here full time i just set him up with food so i'd get my grand to get my parents his grandparents on um because he's wanting to eat you know, he's chit-chatting and my parents are really good. My dad would start drawing pictures 
before he could talk that much and they couldn't have a conversation so much. My dad would draw silly pictures. He'd sort of play boo and things like that. And because he's eating, he's kind of happy. It's like, it's almost like watching TV, which you may not want to do with a young kid, have the screen on, but it worked really well. That was a once a week thing with the grandparents. So that yeah. sort of built him into a routine where he was like, oh, this is fun. I, I get to eat at this time. And, you know, grandpa's going to pull some silly faces. So that worked really good. Yeah. And so yeah, it sounds like, you know, it was approached by you and your family recognizing that it was going to be a bit different and building that in. Right. I, I would assume some of the bigger challenges come from if you're like, well, I'm just, we're just going to hang out for an hour and it'll be like any other time hanging out for an hour. And, and people might find that it's not. Yeah, you have to get super creative. It's true. That's a good point. And then, I mean, again, because this is a long-term thing, like now he's used to checking in. And you know what I've had to do is accept that some days he's just not there. He's like, his mind's elsewhere. He likes to see me, but it's quick. And I can tell, I can tell. I'm like, dude, I, I know you got you. You want to go watch your cartoon now because it's cartoon day because you don't get to watch it every day. It's cool go do your thing. And then other days he's like, he just wants to be there. He just wants to be yeah, really engaged. Yeah, I think that frequency is such a big, important part of it, right? It is because you have that frequency, you have that flexibility where if there's all this weight on like, you know, a weekly call or, you know, even like every couple, like a bi-weekly call, like I think that's too much weight on those calls probably for the person ma- making them. And then, because kids' brains are so in the moment and so variable, like it's really quite a gamble if you're going to have them be able to connect over that time. Yeah, for sure. It's a tricky thing. And so did you find that the, with the military dads then, like, do you think they, did they feel like they had sacrificed their relationship with their family in order to put the country first? Like, was that something they had to reconcile once they came out? Yeah. And they, I mean, they all, they all stated that, you know, the military came first, right? Like that, that was their job and, and they, you know, there's obviously a bigger purpose to it. And I'm so appreciative that people do that role to protect our, our safety. And I maybe don't often think of, I mean, we think of like the heroic kind of valor driven media and that, but maybe don't think of some of those other that I think to put yourself fully into that role where, where you're a protector and you're willing to sacrifice so much for your country, what that looks like on a daily basis. And, and all of them um, spoke to that, you know, the military came first. They were, most of them were happy that they made that decision, but also were able to recognize the loss and some of their other relationships because of that. Were these guys that were long-term in the military or, or were they doing short-term commissions? No, these were, um, I mean, they Lifers. were all different, but, but yeah, careers in the military, like um, some of them, you know, 25, 30 years in, in the military and, and all in, I mean, another aspect, again, I think, you know, military employment and life is so different. And certainly there was a difference between those who were say officers or engineers with the military. They, they sometimes had a bit more flexibility um, versus, you know, like an arm, army kind of infantry right and i guess they would often be stationed with their family in a particular barracks or garrison town or whatever yeah and i'd love to see more more info on you know whether or not that degree of control you feel you have over 
uh, your choices, um, what kind of a influence that makes because some, some guys who are higher up could felt a lot more choice. Whereas others were like, well, you get the call, you got to go. Like, so what if my kid's being bored? Like, I think one of them was talking about how their, their child was bored and they're like, well, if I get the call, I've got to be deployed. So I'm going to have to miss that. Right. Which is, I mean, to me, it's such an interesting way to look at it. Yeah. That's where you have to really shut off, flick that switch, I guess. Yeah, it's interesting. Well, my uncle was in the, he was in the Navy, so he would be around for long stretches, but then he would be away for like, I think he could be stationed on a ship for like two years. I'd have to check that, but it would, I know that they were long, long stretches when he was away and then he'd get back, he'd come back for a month or whatever. So when his kids were really young, he wasn't around much, I think. And again, I'd have to check that. I'm kind of throwing this stuff out there, but I remember him being away for like, yeah, for like for a year at least at a time. And so, yeah, so the kids that you're of the dads that you're talking to, they have grown up and graduated with their dad as being this constant, not in all cases, but like being away the whole time. Yeah. And I know a lot of the fathers talked about um, having a number of, I mean, a fair bit of sadness around the relationships that they had with their kid. And it just, you know, I think back to the work I do with kids and, and, because of where a child's brain is situated developmentally, especially during those early years where, uh, I mean, a bit like a goldfish in that the moment is, is so important, right? And whereas with like a mature brain, you can kind of hold that past and future and, you know, even past and future identities of like, well, I'm their dad, it'll always be their dad. Um, but that can be so much harder for a child's brain. Um, that's, you know, moving from moment to moment to moment and a lot of those moments without that person in it. And so they don't, you know, this overarching concept of, well, that's my dad. Like, I think certainly there's that idea that, well, I love my dad, but then it's a bit clunky when you actually see them because you just, you know, you don't have that familiarity and you you haven't built that safety and trust around a lot of those things. So the key, we've talked about this before, I think, but um, the key attachment years, I, th- I would imagine that could come at any time, but a lot harder to do when the ki- when it's an adult, when it's a young adult, compared to when it's zero to five, somewhere in that, that range. Is that fair to say? Yeah, well, and I would say I would say it's just different too. I, th- I think our you know attachment is is such a needs based system for humans, and what you need in terms of attachment. Um, as a child is going to be different than what you need based on attachment as an adolescent and as an adult. And, you know, you know, we know that it's hard work, but people can shift some of these attachment classifications that happen early in life, later in life, uh, largely people do it through romantic relationships, right? Because those seem to be, especially I think for men, those are, you know, one of the opportunities to have one of those more vulnerable, intimate, safe relationships with somebody. Um, and, and so, yeah, I think, I think as, as that relates to fatherhood, like I would say there's always something you can do to build safety and connection with somebody and it's going to look different throughout life. I, I know, um, you know, where that, where that comes up often in my work is, is with youth who are making difficult decisions and um, man, that's such a hard one because teenagers, uh, a lot of their, 
you know, their drive for relationship and drive for value and importance has at that time moved away from that primary support uh, parent system and now moved into peers. And so, especially if you don't already have those building blocks in place to try to pop into an adolescent's life and say, well, no, you're going to be home by 11 and you're not going to do these things. Like I, I, literature and punk music is so full of teens being like, well, no, I'm not in oh, yeah, you know, totally. more colorful ways. Uh, so I do think like if, you know, those years kind of up till about 11 or 12 before puberty. And then when, when we look at like that primary, are you somebody who's going to be there to support me emotionally? Like, I feel like some of those models are built even earlier, like in those first five years of life, like that's when a, that little brain is just saying, what are these big floating humans around me and are are they people that I trust and are going to meet my needs and, and keep me safe and then those models that they build on those years do stick around after that right yeah no I definitely I recognize that with my boy yeah that's the one yeah the one positive outcome was that I managed to keep him here until he was almost five which was awesome I got so quick question on the teenager piece we don't talk often about the teenagers just because a lot of the dads their kids have flown the nest or they're quite young to forward out. It's just, that's how it's worked out so far. People with teenagers probably just too busy or they're making the most of now that the teenagers can wipe their own ass or whatever. But um, what's the attachment needs of a teenager? Is that easy? Is that an easy thing that we can sort of package up? Yeah. And it, like, it's going to depend on, it's going to be different based on every teenager. Cause I think there are building blocks to it. Right. And I think, um, I think the the role of parenting a teenager, I joke with a lot of parents that you're you're kind of moving from a manager to a consultant. And and when you look at their their brain development at that period, like they do have brains that are driving them to explore a little wider from the nest, right? Like teenagers have this huge reward system built around risk, which they used to talk about, well, teenagers do so many stupid things because uh, the prefrontal cortex isn't fully myelinated yet. And so they're not able to uh, fully predict the outcome of their decisions. But then there's this whole other kind of modern school of research that says, well, but we also see examples of where teenagers know exactly what's going to happen and they know the risks and they do it anyways because there's this huge reward. Like it just feels good to take these risks, right? And I don't know, you think back to teenage years and some of the stuff that you're into, whether it's around, you know, drugs, sexuality, I think even the music that you choose, sports you engage in, the way you engage in relationships, uh, which is so important. And and I know um, David Bainbridge, who's written a lot on teenage brain development and teens, uh, he, he goes far enough to say that it, it is what defines humanity is this teenage period because it's it's the changes and the drive that we have in teenage years that establish us uh, and allow us to live the lives that we end up living as adults, right? Like if we didn't have that drive to fly the nest, if we didn't have that drive to, you know, call, call the first person we had a crush on who we were terrified to call, um, I, I think life would look a whole lot different for humans. Yeah, no doubt. And with that too, um, cause I've worked so much with teenagers. So it's a, it's an interesting topic for me and, but, and I'm going to have teenage kids, three boys, three teenage boys at some point, if we were going to be gender specific about this in terms of those needs as a teenager and the attachment needs, are they different between male and female? 
Yeah, I, I would say you could generalize and say they're different between male and female. I would also say um, they're also going to be different within genders too, right? I mean, we know, hopefully at that point, we know our children and, and how they sit. There are going to be some kids who need a little bit more pushing and, and supporting, and then there are going to be other kids who need a little bit more holding down. And I, I think even when it's done well, uh, parenting an adolescent should be a struggle because it's, you know, you have one one person in the relationships whose whole drive is to say like, look, I've figured this out and I feel like I can do all these things. And then you have another person in the relationship who's saying, I feel like I know a little bit more than you and I don't think you can do all these things. So here are your limits. And, and a healthy dynamic is going to be them continually pushing hopefully a little bit further, right? Like there's that there's a uh, old old anecdote that that was like it's amazing how much my dad learned between the ages of when I was between my ages of 18 and 25 right because it feels like when you're 18 you're like man these people don't know anything right like they don't even know any rappers with little in their name right and then right, by the yeah. time by the time you're 25 it feels like there's this thing where you're like all of a sudden like man my parents know so much like hopefully <laughs> And you start leaning on him. And so much of that is, I think, to do with that brain, you know, that brain of like a, a an 18 year old that's just like, I, I can do it. I should do it. Like, you guys don't get it. Why are you stopping me from doing this? Just that huge drive to get out and fly the nest that settles down as they get a little older. And so, you know, to go back to that kind of consultant comment, like I think parenting an adolescent well is is being aware that that's happening and giving them places where they can try to fly but then also you know grabbing the back of their shirt before they launch off a cliff and being like whoa okay that one's a little too high and then being like I think I can do it just let me do it and being like you know that one's too high we'll let's go back to another one and accepting them being a bit grumpy at you for that <laughs> yeah no doubt and you're in it right you have a teenage daughter like a young teenage daughter well she's 12 so I don't oh, know she's... I don't know what lines were she's 12 teen she's close yeah yeah, teenaging a 12-year-old or parenting a 12-year-old daughter is, um, yeah, certainly a fascinating, uh, I, I, it feels like you're constantly just diffusing a bomb that never is fully diffused, <laughs> um, I think would be the best. And at times where you, you know, you get frustrated, you're exhausted with that, you forget the delicacy of that work that you're doing, it's like, okay, brace yourself for the explosion. Does it help? Like you've, Obviously, you've done therapy with families and with teenagers for years. Has that work helped? Or does it just all go out the window when you're emotionally attached to, you know, your kid? I think it helps when I, I, I think, like any parent, and I think maybe my therapy stuff is a little bit unique in that I've focused and spoken so much about um, particular system in parenting and caregiving, which is looking at arousal systems and the role that arousal plays in the way that our brain works. Um, and, you know, not not arousal in, in like a sexual way, but arousal in terms of like our central nervous system and kind of the energy we carry into the emotions that we have. And like, I think for me, parenting a, a preteen teen uh, who's just, you know, in the explosion of puberty right now, um, I, I think being aware of how that system works has been huge, right? It'll, it allows me to, I think, be a bit more realistic around, you know, if we have a blow up, um, 
I can understand that in relation to where their brain's at. And uh, it doesn't make it that easy in the moment. And there are still those times where, you know, I know the theory and then I 180 degrees go against it just because I'm frustrated, right? Of like, okay, well, you can't talk to me like that. Even though in my head, like, I know like, oh, well, this is like a primitive fight system. And at this point, all they're doing is engaging in a way to try to to hurt me because I'm seen as something that's potentially causing a boundary to the things that they feel they need in this moment, which are totally misguided. Like I can go down that rabbit hole. Um, but in those moments, it's like, hey, you don't speak to me like that. I need you in your room. And then as I calm down being like, oh man, that is not going to go well. I need to repivot or we're going to both be in for a tough night. Yeah, I guess you're human, eh? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so just just to stop you there real quick, because um, I know we're kind of coming up to time. Don't want to keep you too long. Um, but the whole putting the kid in the room, is that a no-no in your eyes? I think it depends. Like, I think it depends why you're doing it. Um, like, you know, this time out parenting model that... Um, that I think has just been used by parents for so long. I think the reason behind it is so important. Like if you're sending somebody to their room um, as a punishment or as a, a way for them to reflect on what they're doing, like, I don't know if you were ever sent to your room or if you can think back to times when you were sent to your room, like, was there ever a time where you were like, in your room thinking of like, oh, well, here are the pros and cons of the behavior I recently displayed. Here are some things I can adjust for next time. Like typically when you're in your room, it's like, well, how long do I have to be in here? Uh, but, but it does tend to work in a way and it works in a way because you're typically moving somebody from a high stimulation environment to a low stimulation environment. And then really the medicine in that moment tends to be time and time in a low stim environment, which I think you know, tricks parents sometimes into thinking like, well, oh, my form of discipline, like by disciplining you and sending you to your room, you really figured out who was in charge here. And now you've calmed down, which I don't think is necessarily the case. I, I think what we could do is be more purposeful with recognizing that somebody who's overwhelmed by reducing stimulation, uh, by shifting around the moving parts so that they're better able to calm, they're going to calm. And so some kids need adults with them to help them calm uh, at any age. Like I've worked with teenagers a lot over the years that uh, have these confusing systems, which you could get into attachment, like these disorganized attachment systems that uh, when they're freaking out, you know, their words and their actions are the get away from me. Don't talk to me. I hate you. Um, but then what they're doing in those moments uh, is totally con like they're following you around, telling you to leave them alone, or they're sitting on the other side of the door, like kicking it, saying like, just go away. I hate you in like a rhythmic, almost chanty way, um, which like, why would you be kicking on the door if instrumentally you weren't trying to engage the person on the other side? Like that's just a waste of human energy. And so like, I think for kids like that, um, finding a way to, to be boundaried and respectful of your own needs in those moments, because I have worked with lots of kids who have been violent towards caregivers. And so finding strategies to recognize that they need you to be with them. Uh, and for all kids, I think finding safe ways to engage parallel with kids in those moments where they're freaking out can help them calm down a lot quicker. I know with my kids, one thing I used to do is I just, I really like drawing. So I'd used to just 
I'd sit in the room with them while they were freaking out and I just get some drawing stuff and kind of lay it out on the floor and start drawing in parallel with them uh, while they were freaking out. And, you know, initially they'd, they'd still give you the like, just leave me alone, just get out of here kind of uh, talk. But then as time, you know, and you're like, well, yeah, but I'm just going to stay here in case you need me. Like, it's all right. I know you need your space right now. And they'd still probably respond aggressively. But then over time, you know, they'd slowly move towards the staff and start scribbling on paper. And then uh, eventually they'd be drawing in parallel with you. So I think doing safe things in parallel with kids and being available to them can help them calm quicker than like a timeout parenting. Because uh, kids are usually in those moments saying through their actions, like I can't really regulate on my own right now. Um, it, I, I remember there was, um, oh, I wish I could, the book was called Time in Parenting, but it was written by a U of T professor. And he used the metaphor in the book that time out parenting is used a bit like if we've got kids who are playing soccer and one of them's not as good as the other kids at soccer. And if we were to look at them and say, hey, it seems like you kind of suck at soccer. So why don't you go over to a field over there on your own? learn soccer and then come back and play with the team when you figured it out right and that's I thought that was a really funny metaphor and kind of true because you know the kid in the moment is showing that they can't regulate their emotions and then we're saying okay well you need to go to your room and figure out how to act in public and then come back once you figured it out even though they already showed us that that's a struggle for them versus recognizing it as a skill they need to build and supporting them and building it. Ah interesting I really like the um so I'm not at send the kids to the room. I mean, my kids are young, eight and like three. Um, I do have a technique that I'll share and you, you may not approve, but I'll, I'll try it out. But I really like the energy, the idea of your energy, your calm energy drawing. Because there's something about when someone's doing art, I don't know, they just have a very calm presence. And I would imagine that activity, not just sitting there reading a book, but something about the drawing, it would draw me in. I'd be like, what's he yeah. drawing? I'd want to be watching and getting involved which is um, I've done things like that to grab, to get the attention and focus of like big groups of kids. I used to hacky sack. I used to be okay at hacky sacking, but I would do it on my own and it would just draw the kids in. I'd have a group of 30 kids sitting standing around watching what I trying to figure out what I was doing. So I like that. Um, but yeah, yeah Lego is not- another one. Uh, for little kids like lego is such a good parallel especially boys whose brains tend to be a bit more instrumental so if you do something instrumental like building or taking apart or something like that you might catch them easier yeah that's good one i mean i guess the room thing is just the shifting of the environment to something you know shifting that energy in a way but one thing i've done with the little ones it worked with seth really well i do with indy but very rare so i want to say that it's a rare thing but if Seth was like just not listening and, you know, he's eating food and he's done all the other things, but he's just pushing back or he's just having that meltdown. Sometimes just sit him, not away, but sit him right there on a happens to be a step because it's right in the middle of our main room now. But it used to be just a chair that was like in the kitchen. He would sit there. I'll be doing the washing up or something. I was like, dude, you just got to just get it out. You know, you just you got to get it out. Um, and it wouldn't last long. And if it did, then I'd jump straight in and give him a cuddle and soothe him and be like, okay, let's talk. But just sometimes just to have like right there in the room, right with you, but just like, just sit there and just chill. Like instead of throwing your stuff around or freaking out. And my wife, I guess using that sort of technique in a way, she doesn't really do that. To be honest, it's more me that does that sort of hard boundary thing. But um, 
she has a thing where she she counts to three. I don't really know what's meant to happen at three, but when he get by two, he's there. Got to put yeah. your jacket on. Okay, you're not listening. I'm gonna take the toy away or something. One, two, and he's there. Like it's yeah. ne- it never gets to three. I don't know what he thinks is gonna happen at three. I think it's it's that operant conditioning we'd call it in psychology, where where like if if you remember that um. The experiment of Pavlov's dog. Remember that, where he'd he'd ring a bell every time in in parallel with feeding the dog, and then uh, eventually got to the point where he'd ring the bell and he didn't even need to feed, and the dog would salivate. And I think with kids, like if you've kept that routine of like, well, I'm going to count as three, and then there's going to be this thing. Like at the end of the day, you don't even need to give a thing if you've done it enough consistently to where the counting itself becomes a like, uh oh right that's exactly it it's so funny yeah. i think it was the step i think look if you're not going to listen you're going to keep running around the table and not put your jacket on you can just sit on the step for a minute and just can't you know just calm that energy down and um yeah so i found that works and like you're right yeah. it's so conditioned now yeah and we have to use like we do end up using rooms sometimes but we're pretty clear about it and we're pretty supportive like it's not go in your room and get away from all of us it's because i have two siblings that are three years apart and and i feel like if a 12 year old girl were to have an arch nemesis, it would be a nine year old boy. Like we didn't really, we didn't really maybe plan that out. Not that you can, but it, it creates this really hard dynamic. And we've got this little, it's a little Kootenai home, right? Where it's really hard. And they're both in this moment feeling like they hate each other uh, and yet are two feet apart putting their elbows in each other's spaces and reaching over each other and pushing each other as they walk by. And so it just gets to the point where it's like, Hey, I need you both to just go somewhere totally different because the way that your energy is building right now, like I know how this is going to end and it's not going to end well. Like you guys are going to be like one of those old, you know, peanuts cartoon illustration of a smoke cloud with limbs flying out of the smoke cloud. If we don't (laughs) intervene at this point, because because, yeah, I think, you know, she's uncomfortable at the stage she is in, in life. And it's really easy for her to go to that, um, turn some of that into aggression. And then he becomes a really easy target for it. And as a awkward, energized nine-year-old boy, I mean, a lot of people can guess how he translates that aggressive energy. He's certainly not great at diffusing bombs yet. Yeah. Uh, he's... He's more like a just kind of kick the bomb and see what happens type of scenario. And so, yeah, we're absolutely in a place where it's like, hey, I just need you both to go to your room for a little bit. And then if we can divide and conquer, well, one of us will go to each of those spaces and try to help them calm down. Yeah. Uh, And then it's also a reminder that, you know, those arousal systems, like in the moment, like, well, I'm talking with her in her room, she may appear calm. Um, but it's also important to remember that, you know, cortisol and stress hormones and all those things that impact arousal, like they're not just a, a thing that happens in your brain. They're a thing that happens in your whole physiology and it takes time to calm down because, you know, I can think I've calmed people down and be like, all right, you guys go back to what you were doing. And, and it can be like a half hour later. And then still like the second they see each other, it's back to that place and be like, oh man, <laughs> good times. We're yeah. all growing. Oh man, we are. That is for sure. That is for sure. No, I think you're right. Like that, I could see that being a need to get the kids in different rooms. Well, the same thing with mine, because there's a five-year gap. So we've got Indy, who's going to be three in January, and then Sethi, who's like, yeah, he's eight, eight and a half. So 
there's a gap. So sometimes it's like, dude, you guys are just playing at different levels right now. Like Sethi, go have some like quiet time up in your room. And there's always resistance to that, but I think it's healthy for them to, yeah, learn how to regulate themselves on their, in the room playing on their own, which they're both yeah. good at, but of course they get drawn to each other. And eventually sometimes it's like, yeah, we all need a bit of personal space and the room's oh, a good place to get that. There's that like important narcissism. I think that kids have at, at those ages where they're really like figuring out themselves and like, you know, the, a Lego thing that they're building isn't just a Lego thing. It's their Lego thing. Like, well, that was mine. And, uh, you know, three-year-olds don't understand that, right? Like three-year-olds sure cruise in through spaces and, you know, well, an eight-year-old's in. Yeah. Yeah. That, that can become a pretty it's tricky it's tricky but pros and cons because amazing as brothers like the big brother yeah. that gap there's no jealousy we don't get that issue coming up what about me what about me he's like he's right in there helping sometimes too much i'm like dude he's we got two parents here you don't have to parent him and tell him no all the time like so there's that dynamic we're figuring out but it's super fun like i love it like i love chatting with you as well because yeah just with your background and the studies you've done and you're also parenting right now. And I'm just behind you. So it's really useful information for me. Yeah, the fairness thing. I mean, that'll, I'm sure that's already, but it'll, I mean, that's something that's so hard in childhood. I think that like rough binary brain that they have of like trying to understand morality and like everything has to be equal uh, yeah. or, or yeah. it creates a crisis. That's such a fun part of kids' brains to navigate to with siblings, right? Of like, guys, we, we got this for them because they needed this. And it's like, well, I didn't get anything. It's like, yeah, but it's not about getting something on every trip. It's about getting what you need. And this was a trip to get them what they needed. Like, Oh, oh yeah. I could see that. That's constant the discussion. Yeah. But they got two things, but they needed two things. <laughs> well, we do that even. We've just been, um, okay, Santa's real. I'll just, I almost said something. That's, we know Santa's real because uh, it's the spirit of giving which is a real thing. Um, but yeah, just trying to figure that out with the presents, right? Like, do they both have the same number of presents? And it, eventually you're like, they're different ages. There's a five-year gap. They're good. Like if they're quite close, then you could see them yeah. being like, well, that's not reasonable. But yeah, so you have to, it's a tricky one. And then with, of course, my boy coming here, he's not been here for three months. There's that juggle of like, you kind of want to spoil him a little bit, but you kind of, you know, Indy's young enough that he wouldn't realize but as they get older, anyway, it's going to be yeah. interesting as, as they both get older. Yeah, I think we struggle a little more with um, trying to understand which code of conduct uh, Santa's working from. Like, what what are his, what moral code? Is it like a Christian, like an old Christian? I don't, I'm not totally sure. And I'm, I've never been that comfortable with him watching my kids when they're sleeping and judging their morality. But anyways, it's a t discussion <laughs> for another time. Yeah, totally. Oh, we do the Santa thing. What one thing I will say is that when I was growing up, Santa used to come into the room and would get a, he'd fill the sack of prep, this, the empty sack at the end of the bed. And I used to love moving my feet in the morning on Christmas day because you'd feel the weight of it. Um, and then you knew it'd come and it was, you know, you'd get up and have your presents. I think, I think my eldest boy, when he was like two and a half, he would have been two and a half. And it was just me and him in the home. Because um, at that point, me and his mom had separated. He went to bed Christmas Eve and woke up. All it, we were all excited about Christmas. He woke up freaking, freaking out. The idea of an old man that he doesn't know coming into his room, he was losing it. 
So I had to sort of shift that. So I don't do what I did growing up. There's no, uh, Santa doesn't go into his room. I don't allow that. I put it out there to Santa. I leave the cookies down by the tree. So that's where the presents end up. But that was an interesting, I'd never thought of that. But of course, the idea of some old man coming in the room. Yeah, there, there are maybe some things as a culture we can adjust with that that story, right? I mean, maybe we're setting kids up for trouble if if we're, you know, giving them the message that people will will give you things if you comply to their, their their needs of how they want you to behave. I don't know if that always sets kids up. Yeah, no doubt. For success. It's. Yeah. I mean, we could at Rudolph. I can't. I've gotten a lot of. Um, a lot of people have struggled with my descriptions of my distaste for the Rudolph story. Because <laughs> oh, really? I know it rubs people's nostalgia the wrong way, but uh, if they're of any of our cultural narratives, like I think Rudolph is my most hated, if I'm totally honest. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I can't handle it. I think it's such a horrible message for bullying. Like it's terrible. Like here, you know, here you have this reindeer with this, you know, uh, biological deformation uh, and he's ridiculed for it and excluded and not allowed to play reindeer games. And then the solution isn't the, the people who are ridiculing him for being different, changing their behavior, but rather Rudolph uh, risking his life using, like having this random opportunity to prove that his biological misformation is now valuable to them and risking his life and then being like, oh, I guess you have some value to us, Rudolph. Like, you know, I wonder what message that sends for kids who are being bullied. <laughs> I didn't even like, think what? about that. Rudolph the red yeah, reindeer. That's you the know, thing. we're then sending this message to kids of like, well, you need to prove to them that you're actually worthwhile versus like, no, other kids just shouldn't be jerks to them, right? <laughs> that's hilarious. Yeah, well, that story doesn't come up too much in our house, the whole Rudolph thing. But we're definitely we definitely buy into that Santa and his reindeer kind of coming at night on Christmas Eve. Hard my not kids to. Just, my kids just roll their eyes at me when I start talking about it because they know i'll go too deep into it <laughs> well man really glad that we got another chance to chat before christmas and made it work always it's super fun chatting um so yeah looking forward to the new year so have a good christmas and yeah you too i'm looking forward to skiing we should go skiing in the new year too do a live podcast from the chairlift that would be cool all right sounds good okay buddy okay okay have a good one Thanks for listening. And if you enjoyed the show, please do share and subscribe and leave a rating or an even better, a review wherever you listen to your podcast. Please find us on Facebook and Instagram at Dab Without Borders and a full list of episodes can be found at dabwithoutborders.com. Thanks for supporting the show and we'll see you next time.